Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is the New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry, who is out with his brand new Cotton Malone novel. This one is called The Atlas Maneuver. It is available everywhere. It's number 18 in the Cotton Malone series, and Steve's written a lot of other stuff too, but we're talking about The Atlas Maneuver today. And Steve, I always like in your writings, you take us on a historical journey to set up the story. So with this particular one, can you take us to Japan and set up the historical background for us? Yeah, the book deals with two things that always have fascinated me for a long time. Yamashita's gold, which was a treasure that was hidden by the Japanese army at the end of World War II. Some of it was found by the Americans after the war. Some say it was used for some nefarious purposes by the American intelligence community for a number of years. Nobody really knows for sure, which makes it great for me to use in the novel. But the gold was real, and a lot of it still remains in the ground there. And then the other thing that fascinated me about this book was Bitcoin. I just it's just a so interesting, and I never was you know I I just didn't know anything about it. I didn't understand Bitcoin. I didn't know how, I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know any much about it at all. So I spent about six months. I did a lot of reading. I had some folks teach me some things. And this novel incorporates Bitcoin into the plot. It may be the first thriller I know of where Bitcoin is actually not just in the story, but is the story. And these two come together, and Cotton Malone gets caught up in a war between the world's oldest bank and the CIA, which uh, makes for a great adventure. Well, this whole idea of Bitcoin, I've talked to people over the last few years as this has kind of become an issue with Bitcoin, and they try to explain it to me, and I don't have a clue what they're talking about. So as I read your book, it all seemed to be a lot more clear what they were telling me years ago. But to sit down and look at it, you almost had to do, it was like a law school class trying to immerse yourself into this world, wasn't it? Yes, because I, I, I knew nothing about it. I mean, I, I'm like you. I, just, I didn't understand anything about it. But the reader's going to get a pretty good education on Bitcoin in this novel. Uh, I tried to explain it in the, as best I could and show, show it. And I also tried to explain the flaw in the Bitcoin system. The system has a major flaw in it. can't really tell the readers what that art is right now because it gives away the novel. But there is a flaw in there that's fascinating that the Bitcoiners kind of say, well, it'll never happen. But, you know, don't say something will never happen. It can happen. And in my story, it does. So uh, it was fun to learn about this this new concept. And I think the reader's going to, you know, uh, get a good understanding of it as well. When you sit down to talk about Bitcoin, and, you know, your purpose is to entertain. And I would think that at, the, at first blush, somebody may hear, oh, God, a book about Bitcoin. That's going to be so boring. But if they've ever read a Steve Berry book, they know it's entertaining. So how did you, as the writer, take the, the boring, mundane details of Bitcoin and turn it into essentially something that's going to entertain and not be a thousand-page Clancy novel trying to explain how a ship works? Because I made it part of the plot, basically. As the plot unfolds, you learn about Bitcoin because what you need to know about the plot and Bitcoin are sort of intertwined together. And I just made it part of the part of the overall scheme of the plot. And uh, I think I think we succeeded. I think the reader's going to say, "Wow, now I, I kind of understand what that what all that's about." And and and. And why, you know, what what makes it work, what makes it doesn't work, and so you know, it's just one of those things. You're right. My primary job is to entertain, but if I can inform along the way, that's always a good thing. 
I like you know, reading Cotton Malone novels. They all seem to have the same general format, the historical mystery, the, the, the modern-day tie-in, and then the way Cotton does this. But you can't make them all the same, because otherwise nobody's going to read the same book 18 times. But I, I think back to Earl Stanley Gardner when he wrote the Perry Mason series, because those books, the, the format of a Perry Mason was always the same. So do you follow a general outline in your head, or is this a, a wheel that you put together like Earl Stanley Gardner had? Or how do you, how do you make sure that you, you follow the same outline and backbone, but nevertheless stay that much different? Well, the trick to writing a series is each book in the series has to be the same but different. And that's a tall order, the same but different. And the Gardner books were that way. The Cussler books are that way. There's a lot of series that, that I've, I, I myself have read. The same in these books are action, history, secrets, conspiracies. Cotton Malone, you know, Stephanie Nell, Cassiopeia Vitt, some of the characters that are, are the same. But what's different in every book is a different aspect of history, different motivations, different bad guy, uh, different locales. Uh, so that's the trick. You've got to keep them the same but different. But I write my books where you don't have to read them in any order. You can actually skip around. It's not required. This is the 18th cotton, but you can start the series right here and go. Uh, I don't re write them where you've got to read the other 17 to know what's going on. I know that you travel around the world looking for these little nuggets of history, and especially the ones that there's no real true answer for that make great fodder for books. But as you've done that, do you find that history is better preserved in some parts of the world than others? Yes, I do. I have found that, particularly Europe, uh, Western Europe, does a great job of preserving their things that are there, absolutely. Russia, not so much. Uh, they, they have a, a great treasure there, but they don't take care of it like they should. Eastern Europe is just coming online with that, so they're beginning to get there, but a lot of their stuff is not as, as readily maintained either, left over probably from the Cold War and the Soviet influence. So, yes, there are different areas of the world where, where things are more important. We, we here in this country... We probably do a, a C-plus job in preserving our history. Uh, we, uh, you know, some areas are very, do, a, do a great job, others not so much at all. So um, historic preservation is something that's near and dear to me, so I kind of, I kind of watch it carefully. As you go about the country and, you, and, and the, in the world and, and research, do you get much pushback when some of the historical nuggets that you want to delve into uh, people don't want you to find out about? Or also, as you do your research, do you find competing theories and competing stories that both of them can't be true? I, 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 you get the competing stuff all the time. There's no question about that. And you have to sometimes make educated guesses of what to do. But I've never had anybody say, you know, you shouldn't do that or any kind of real pushback. I, most folks around the world uh, like it that you take an interest into their country, their history, that you that it's something that you are sincerely interested in and you want to know more about. So I've always found it to be quite appreciative. How much poetic license do you take, artistic license do you take with the history, and does that pose any problems to you just ethically as a writer that, well, you maybe have to change the facts to match the story? Well, I, I have to change it up a little bit, but I keep my books about 90% to reality and to the history. That's the niche I've carved for myself, so I keep it very close there. I trip it up that 10% because I'm writing a novel to entertain you, but I always put a writer's note in the back of every book that tells you what was true and what was false so that you'll know when you're done and you don't leave that book with any misconceptions. I'm chatting with Steve Barry about his brand new Cotton Malone novel. It's called The Atlas Maneuver. It is available everywhere. And Steve, I love the fact that you, we, we were, you're a practicing lawyer. You were a practicing lawyer, you know, before you got into this 
writing. And as you do that, do you think back to the times when you first started writing and you're writing in a bubble, nobody knew who you were, versus the pressure you feel now to, to put out another book? And how does that weigh on you as you turn these final manuscripts in, thinking there's no way this one could be as good as the last one? Or do you, do you have those those internal struggles? Oh, yeah, you always have self-doubts about that. There's a, there's a point in every novel about halfway through when you say, this is the worst thing I've ever written in my life. No one's going to read this. This is just dribble. It happens in every book, and then you have to kind of get over that hump. Once you get over it, you can bring it home and, and get it done. You know, it took me 12 years to get published. From the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word, I had 85 rejections in that 12 years. So I had a very long process to getting published. So there was pressure there, too, pressure now. I don't see it any different now than then. Um, then I was learning the craft. I was trying to you know, break in. Now I just try to you know, keep going. You know, people ask me all the time, what's your goal? My goal is just to keep doing it. You know, if I can keep doing it, I've accomplished the goal. So, I um, I've been I've been blessed. I've had a a, a, a good run. Uh, you know, with uh, 24 novels now, and uh, we're in 50 countries around the world. So I've, I've had a pretty good run. What's the competition like among thriller writers, and especially historical thriller? Because there are a lot of historical nuggets out there, but I'm sure you find one and want to write about it, but you have to keep it close to your vest because maybe that's three books later. So how do you kind of keep these things close to your vest when you're chatting with your other thriller pals? I just don't, we don't talk about what we're, what we're going to work, we talk about what we're working on now is what we talk about because that's something we're all in the process of, publishers are involved, you know, they're in and everybody's fine with that, but we don't talk about things down the road. I, I do kind of keep those close because you don't want someone to come in and do it, and that means i got to go find another idea. And uh, the last thing the world a writer wants to do is write what someone else has already written, so you want to be fresh and different. So I do kind of keep it to myself. Like I've, I know what I'm going to do for the next three years, but no one else knows but me. Do you get any pushback like how like they do in Hollywood where sometimes a bad guy in your story can't be from a certain country or things like that because of investors? Does that ever happen among the publishing industry? No, I had it I had it in The King's Deception is the only time it ever happened because the bad guy in that book originally was from Northern Ireland and that plot was so explosive and the historical element so sensitive that my British publisher asked me to change that and make it. So I did. I changed that bad guy to an American. Uh, the, the King's Deception is a fascinating book dealing with Queen Elizabeth I in, a, in an interesting aspect of what she may or may not have been. But it was so close to home that they wanted me to modify a little bit, and I did. Does that offend you as a writer to have to do that? No, not at all. No, I understood the process. I, they, they made a very good case. They explained it very clearly, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, and, and actually, it probably worked out better that he was American. I could have him do a lot more things. Uh, a lot, lot more, lot different things. So, you know, it didn't bother me a bit. It was just, uh, it was just fascinating that a, a novel of fiction uh, would have that kind of impact. They were just, they were just afraid it might have too much of an impact. I would think that as a writer, as talented as you are, you you could write a romance novel. You could write a novel about a homey Christmas story. But nevertheless, Cotton Malone is your. Uh, bread and butter and so do you ever have these story ideas come into your mind but you know that I, I could write a great novel about this but it just wouldn't work does that go on in your mind oh a ton a ton of times i mean i mean all writing is difficult i mean the romance industry the writing is very hard there you've got to 
There's a there's a there's a, a lot of things you have to do right there, and a lot of things you don't want to do there. Same with all the genres. But uh, I would love to branch out a little bit. I, I actually wrote about fifteen thousand words of a science fiction novel uh, that I would love to go back and finish up. But I do have a book coming out next summer called The List, which is kind of like a Grisham, David Baldacci, Harlan Coben kind of novel that I written I wrote many years ago, and I've rewritten and put it together, and it's going to come out. So it's going to be a a little different for me. A little pure suspense thriller that'll be out next summer. Well, and I, I read a little bit about the, that that was coming out, and you wrote that as you were a practicing attorney, right? I did. I wrote that in 1992, and then I rewrote it in 2005, four or five, and then I rewrote it again during COVID. So, uh, yeah, I wrote that a lot. It's the second manuscript I ever wrote in my life. It's a great story. It just wasn't ready for prime time. But uh, now it is, and I think people are going to like it. It's, uh, I think my readers are going to like it, but I think the Grisham, Baldacci, Harlan Coben folks are going to like it, too. What makes something not ready for prime time when you write it? Because th- that's, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of non-writers to grasp. Well, it's the, the craft. The craft wasn't right. I mean, it was, that book was 120,000 words long. It's now 102,000 words. So I had like 20,000 words too many in the book, for one thing. Uh, it, it, you, know, you learn as you write. You get a little better every day. You never get great at it. You just get a little better every day, a little bit more, a little bit more. So I just applied that, that craft that I've learned and made the, the, the story flow better and smoother and cleaner. It's just a, it's a very different read than from the first time. But it was the second manuscript that I wrote. So it, you know, it's not supposed to be good, you know, the second manuscript you ever wrote in your life. But uh, you just you learn and you, you work at it. And I've been wanting to publish this book for a long time. And finally, Grand Central said yes. Tell me about this bookshop that you do your research at, that you buy books from in Florida, because I think that's a fascinating story. Yeah, the Chamblin Book Mine. It's a huge store up in Jacksonville, Florida. I used to live 30 minutes from it, but now I live three hours from it. So I only go a few times a year now, where I used to go once a month. Huge. Thousands of books. The history section probably has 10,000 volumes in there. And they constantly are coming in over and over and over, so you got new stuff all the time. And that's why I do 90% of my research. He's got I mean, they, uh, a man by the name of Ron Chamblin owns it, and it's just absolutely fantastic. I um, I couldn't have written the novels without it. Do you keep all your research? No, no, I don't. I, at the end of each book, I chunk it away and start and start again. All right. Well, the new book is called The Atlas Maneuver. It's the latest Cotton Malone novel by Steve Barry. The book is available everywhere. And if you've never read a Cotton Malone book, you've got uh, 18 to choose from, and you can pick them up anywhere in the series. Steve, just an amazing book here, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Thanks for having me. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. On the mountain was the treasure buried.